It's about what you like to eat because a sustainable diet has to be delicious. So you want to eat that food every day. It's as simple as that. This is Can Do, a podcast that explores the essential lessons for business success. As the world continues to feel the effects of the coronavirus, uncertainty and unpredictability have become the status quo. It has never been more important to learn from entrepreneurs and industry experts about their experiences and to hear their advice. Whether you're a business owner, entrepreneur, or your career is affected by the current economic climate, lessons shared by our guests can help you make informed decisions about your future. I'm your host, Arnie Sherman. There are only a handful of physicians worldwide who hold both medical and culinary degrees. There's only one who is a board-certified cardiologist and professional chef. Meet Montana's own Dr. Michael Fenster, better known as Chef Dr. Mike. Author of five books on the benefits of healthy natural eating, Chef Dr. Mike believes that good food can fix just about anything. Chef Dr. Mike is a recognized global leader combining evidence-based medical insights with healthy eating in a way that challenges most of the current myths of fad dieting. Today on Can Do, Chef Dr. Mike will tell us how and why he moved beyond being a cardiologist and developed a career niche in culinary medicine. We'll discuss how what's on your plate directly affects your health and how food that's good for you can also be the most delicious. Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by the Dennis and Phyllis Washington Foundation, dedicated to investing in people to improve the quality of their lives. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. Welcome to the show, Chef Dr. Michael Fenster. How are you today? I'm doing great, Arnie. Uh, thanks so much for having me here. That's my pleasure, really. So tell our listeners a bit about your fascinating journey from being a board-certified cardiologist to a doctor chef. How did that all happen? It, it actually happened kind of in reverse. So I was actually uh, a chef first. Uh, you know, I, when I grew up, um, way back in the dark ages, there were no celebrity chefs, but there was Julia Child and the Galloping Gourmet. And uh, my mom was a very, very good home cook. And she would watch those. And often when I came home from school, you know, I'd help her fix what she had watched on TV and had all of the cookbooks out during the day. So the, the kitchen was a very natural place for me uh, growing up. And then when I went to college to help pay for college, going into the food industry was kind of a very natural environment. And having cooked with my mom, I thought I was a heck of a great cook, right? And, and they should put me right on the line. And what the, they said was, we don't have any positions, but you could start as a dishwasher. So I actually started as a dishwasher for a good six months and then worked my way up to line cook. And then eventually what today we would call the, the back of the house, went off to medical school after college. Um, but I always kept that love affair that I've had with, with food, uh, with cooking, um, and all uh, the things that are involved in that food experience with me. And then, you know, eventually... Um, because of my own personal journeys, I had some issues with joint um, problems because uh, I thought I was a great high school athlete. And in retrospect, I, I really wasn't. And so what I did was uh, break a lot of bones and tear tendons and ligaments trying to be a great athlete. And uh, that, you know, that came home to, to roost. Uh, and they actually told me I needed a joint replacement. 
uh, you know, when I was uh, much younger than I am now. And I looked at that and I said, well, gosh, what can I do, you know, for my end? And my diet was horrible. Uh, I had sort of the typical doctor diet. You know, I was eating um, what the drug reps brought into the hospital, stopping off at Krispy Kreme at 6 a.m. for, you know, a hot glazed donut, which, yes, they are delicious, and a big mug of coffee. And I, and I looked, I said, you know, I know food. And I know I can do better than this. So I did, and I changed my diet. And that was over 20 years ago, and I still don't have a joint replacement. So, uh, you know, I took that personal information, started sharing it with patients. And, um, you know, from there, culinary medicine was really, really born. And how did you perfect your skills related to what healthy eating was and what good food is and, you know, what should replace you know, what you're already eating in your diet. How did that all evolve? Well, you know, it came from the research. So, uh, you know, the culinary medicine we pro program we teach at the University of Montana uh, is evidence-based. And so kind of like any good scientist, I went back and I started looking at the evidence and did my own research uh, because, you know, initially this was all for my benefit. And, you know, what I found was fascinating. I found, gosh, what they've told me from expert consensus studies, you know, to tell people in terms of don't eat eggs and don't eat cheese because it's full of saturated fat. And uh, at that time, they were also telling people don't eat avocados. Avocados, you know, are, are full of saturated fat. And, and it just, you know, what they were saying didn't jive with the literature. Now, many years later, uh, we, ha we are starting to have the evidence base that shows what I took from these studies and have applied really is the way to go. You know, one of the main thrusts of what we teach is to avoid ultra-processed food. So not looking at food in terms of red meat or eggs or uh, carbs or gluten or saturated fat, but really looking in terms of the levels of ultra-processing. And it turns out that that really seems to be the link uh, between diet and all these diseases it's related to. We're talking about obesity, diabetes, heart disease, etc. So that's kind of where we start with culinary medicine. Our foundation stone, if you will, is laying the tombstone for ultra-processed foods. And what do you mean when you describe food as medicine? Can you actually take food and use it as a preventative tool and a, as a treatment tool? Yeah, uh, you can. I, I personally, I'm not really thrilled about the term food is medicine because as a cardiologist, I have difficulty getting patients to take a bloody aspirin a day. <laughs> um, people don't want, and when I think of medicine, I think ick. Who wants medicine? Medicine doesn't taste good. It's not a fun experience. It's implying I've got something wrong with me. I've got a sickness. You know, I've got to be treated to get through. Whereas, you know, I just think of, you know, eating delicious food and it turns out when we just eat delicious but real and wholesome food that, yes, it acts like a medicine in exactly the ways you just said. So I give you an example. Uh, type 2 diabetes is a scourge, not just in the United States, but around around the world. And not one of the 195 countries on the planet that have seen an epidemic rise in obesity and type 2 diabetes has been able to reverse that curve yet. But the data suggests that 90% of the cases of type 2 diabetes can be prevented with lifestyle modifications like diet. And anywhere from 60 to 80%, depending where you read in the literature, of cases of type 2 diabetes can be reversed. Now, I'm not talking that you get a, a, a little reprieve. We're talking about you're not taking medications anymore. Your hemoglobin A1Cs, when they're checked, are in the normal range. So you can reverse this 
with dietary and lifestyle changes. And yet all we ever see on TV, you know, here in this country are more commercials for more pharmaceuticals. And so exactly what you said, Arnie, is one of our goals is to shift from being reactionary to these diet-induced disabilities and diseases with more pharmaceuticals as the answer to, to exactly what you just mentioned, which is primary prevention. And the beautiful thing is, you know, you'll eat foods that are so yum that, you know, it's a treat and, and you're not even realizing, you won't even consider it medicine, you'll just consider it pleasure. And, and pleasure brings happiness and at the end of the day, isn't that what we all want out of life? Absolutely. So what you advocate, how does that differ from the work of a dietitian, for example? Well, it's interesting because a study just came out actually just a few days ago. And what they did is they looked around the world and said, you know, what's the basis of our dietary recommendations? Well, 99% of all the guidelines, particularly in the United States, but also around the world, are based on nutrients. So a nutrition um, is in a very big state of confusion as a field, and the dietitians are really giving you evidence that's based on nutrients. So, you know, cut out sat saturated fat, don't eat this, don't eat that, eat more of this. But you and I don't eat nutrients, Arnie, we eat food. And so our guidelines, our recommendations have to come from an appreciation of the whole food first, and understand there's uh, really a component of how we eat, which is understanding the food matrix, that's totally ignored in nutrients um, and modern day dietitian approaches. And it has to go with back with actually the great success of nutrition as a science when it was formed 100 years ago. So they discovered vitamins, right? And, and we said, oh my gosh, you know, um, have some lime juice, make a margarita with it if you like. Um, but you, boy, then we don't have any more scurvy. Uh, and we got rid of rickets and we got rid of, you know, pellagra. We got rid of all these diseases because we identified deficiencies. We treated them with a single nutrient. That's brilliant for deficiency disease because that has to do with the composition of the diet. You're finding what nutrient is missing. That doesn't work when we deal with chronic disability and disease like obesity, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera. Those have to do more with the whole foods and the way that those food matrices interact with our bodies, but also how those whole foods interact with themselves, something we would call synergy. And I'll give you a great example. We have studied the bejesus out of antioxidants like vitamin E, so on and so forth. And we said, gosh, you know, when people eat foods that are rich in vitamin E, they have less of these chronic disabilities and diseases. So let's just give them lots of this vitamin E or any other antioxidant. There's a whole list of them they've done trials with, and boom, we should fix the problem. They all fail. Why did they fail? because of something called synergy. So this vitamin E is interacting with literally hundreds of different compounds that are found in that same food. Nobody's packaging on the face of the earth beats mother nature. She's put these things together for us in a way that is holistic, meaning that when you eat an apple, you're getting more benefit than if I just had you take a pill that had every you know, element and nutrient and vitamin that, that was in that apple. Um, and then you combine that apple with other foods because you and I eat meals, which are made of multiple ingredients, and you have thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of potential interactions that cannot be replicated uh, you know, by taking a pill or by constructing artificial foods, uh, which is what an ultra-processed food is. Do you continue to see patients and prescribe food 
for them as a, as part of their treatment regime? Well, yeah. So I'm an interventional cardiologist and I still practice. And I can tell you that is probably the single most um, requested conversation I have. So, you know, a lot of times I'll see somebody at 2 a.m. They're having a heart attack. We put a stent in. They find out who I am. And when I visit them the next morning, uh, the family's usually there and they all have food questions. And I um, actually had a nurse one time just tell me I was the worst ever because I take way too long. You know, it's 30 minutes and it's come on, we got we got other people we got to see. Uh, but, you know, I love talking to the folks about food. And, and what's amazing, Arnie, is, is regular people get it because it's pretty much common sense. And they look at me and it's like, oh, well, you know, yeah, of course, that makes sense. I, I get that. Um, you know, the idea that you can have a steak, for example, that's, you know, a grass finished, um, you know, bison steak or grass finished, um, you know, piece of red meat and, you know, a drive through ultra processed hamburger. They're not the same thing. And people understand that. And so it's not complicated. I won't say that that it doesn't require work because it like all good things in life, it does require a little bit of work you know, on, on folks and to, to practice this way. Uh, but the benefits sure are great. Number one, you don't have to come see me um, at 2 a.m., you know, with a heart attack. Because again, we go to the statistics and it's estimated that about 80% of heart attacks can be prevented through things like culinary medicine, diet, lifestyle modifications. So Chef Dr. Mike, is the rise of like plant-based diet a fad or something that you also advocate as, as part of a healthy uh, eating regime? So I'm, I'm glad you brought this up uh, because this is one of my soapboxes. So number one, I generally advocate that we eat lots of plants, but specifically real plants. So you could saute them, you could put them in a casserole, you can make a salad, whatever you want to do. I specifically advocate against these plant-based ultra-processed foods like Beyond Meat and Possible Burgers. Now, that is primarily being driven by what they estimated is a 1.5 trillion, with a T, trillion dollar global market for these products. And I want to address this because this is near and dear to my heart as a cardiologist uh, in two parts. One, these are not better for the environment than, than me. Um, I know we could do a whole topic and talk on that, but, but the long and short of it is that they grow peas, they grow soy po uh, protein, and this is industrial monocrop agriculture. So number one, you wanna talk uh, about how this is produced. They're what I call green deserts, which means the soil is dead. And the only way that you grow these rows and acres and hundreds of acres of these types of plants is through fertilizers and pesticides. So when you look there, the, the soil, which is actually the greatest carbon sink in terms of addressing things like climate change, pollution, um, et cetera, you end up putting carbon into the atmosphere because they're mechanized. The fertilizers, the pesticides, right, that takes energy to produce. So to make these plants that are the basis of the plant-based burgers and so on and so forth, it, it, it's still an agricultural process which is in complete opposition to something like regenerative farming um, in which you will yield, you know, beef or lamb or pork or whatever animal, as well as grow the plants, because that replicates a much more natural cycle. So, number one, the production of this isn't necessarily, you know, better for the planet. I, I find that a specious argument. 
Uh, number two, they're certainly not better for us. Uh, a study recently came out, uh, was just published uh, by Johns Hopkins, and it looked at plant-based diets, and they found that there was no benefit in terms of cardiovascular disease uh, when people ate a plant-based diet. And this also was in agreement with the previous study published in a, a, a journal of the American College of Cardiology that found the same thing is. Why, we might ask, oh gosh, you're eating these plant-based foods. It, it turns out that when you eat plant-based ultra-processed junk, it carries the same risk of, of heart disease as animal-based processed junk. So let's not argue over whether it's animal or plant because that's not the point. It's the processed junk. And when we say ultra-processed foods, I want to be really specific, Arnie, because that is a specific class of food that is manufactured. We, when we cook food, we process it. We, we thermally process it. When we chew our food, we break it down. We process it. When we ferment our food, we process it. But ultra-processed products spe are specifically things that have their food matrix destroyed or degraded through uh, processes. It may be extrusion molding. It may be fractionation, et cetera. But these things are, are destroyed in terms of their food matrix. And then an artificial food matrix with things that are, there's a sort of a long list of them, but they're manufactured additives and chemicals. We call them markers of ultra processing or mumps. And for example, one might be high fructose corn syrup. So you can have a drink and you can sweeten it with honey, which actually has a whole lot of health benefits, right? So we're using a sweetener. But if you sweeten it like a, a soft drink, uh, you're adding high fructose corn syrup. That's a marker of ultra processing and that soda becomes an, an ultra-processed product. Drinking one can, just one 12-ounce can of soda a day, increases your risk of a heart attack by 30%. The average American consumes over 50 gallons of soda a year. Does that also apply for sugar-free soda as well? Yes, because again, those non-nutritive artificial sweeteners are exactly that, they're artificial. So that is another marker of ultra processing. And so any product that contains these ultra, pro these ultra processed, non-nutritive artificial sweeteners, artificial colors, artificial dyes, cakers, uh, you know, anti-caking devices, uh, humicants, et cetera, et cetera, all these additives in our food, they're all associated with this increased risk. And I'm going to give your, le your uh, listeners a secret tip, okay? They're going to get a free bonus today for listening. How do we figure that out? Chef Dr. Mike, you say it's, it's pretty complicated. There's this long list. All you have to do is count. Count the ingredients on the label. S several studies show if there's more than five ingredients on the label, there's an 85% chance it's ultra processed. So simply keep it to less than five to stay alive. Pick it up in the supermarket, look at it. If it's got more than five and you don't need to throw it away. Everybody I know is concerned about their diet, their weight, you know, what's the right thing to eat, and they you know, migrate from uh, the Mediterranean diet to uh, intermittent fasting. You've used yourself as an experimental tool for the last two decades. What do you eat? What's a typical day of food like for Chef Dr. Mike? So uh, number one, as far as intermittent fasting, um, I always tell people, eat when you're hungry. You know, if you can, um, studies have shown that when we try to time and, 
you know, you eat breakfast every day because you were told it, you know, it's the most important meal of the day, then you come to expect food there, even though you may not need it. So in terms of intermittent fasting, when I get up, I, I eat when I'm hungry, um, number one. Number two, you know, we talk about the Mediterranean diet. I would say, you know, my approach is a Mediterranean approach in that I, I just eat fresh food. I eat real food. I don't eat processed stuff. And, and the world is literally in my menu. It, it's also an approach that's very popular in Japan called kaiseki, uh, where we're, we're looking at what's fresh, what's seasonal, and we're crafting that. Um, you know, I love Tex-Mex. I, I love the flavors of Mexico and, and Central and South America. Um, I was trained as a chef um, in, the, in the continental kind of French, classical French kitchen method. So I, I certainly um, am a big, big fan, you know, of French food um, that, you know, where they did the, the French paradox, which people may have forgotten about. Um, that was several decades ago, but it was one of the things that, you know, I studied doing my research, right? And the French had a cardiovascular event rate, 50% of that seen in the United States, yet the French eat more butter than any other population on earth. They, they love French food is rich in creams, but French food it's particularly at that time was all about freshness, right? These folks will go to the market several times a week. They have small refrigerators over over there, at least at that time. So it wasn't a lot of ultra processed food because you were going to the market and, and, and buying things. And the most healthy region of France was uh, Gascony, where they eat more foie gras, which is fatty, you know, goose liver, duck liver, than anywhere else on earth. Now they balance that with with a fresh salad and a glass of wine, and they had an event rate that was twenty five percent of that in the United States. So in the U.S. at that time, they're telling everybody to stay away from saturated fats, no butter, no creams, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The French are doing the exact opposite, and they're healthier than we were by a long shot. And the only difference really was on the quality and the freshness of the food. And, and to this day, you know, the, the French paradox hasn't been fully explained. They, they looked at the wine. Um, they told us not to eat cheese. Well, the, the amount of cheese that the French eat in a year, about 50 pounds per person at that time, was the entire fat that you were allowed to eat as an American if you went by again those nutricentic guidelines that identified we have to limit fat and that whole low fat push. So, so Chef Dr. Mike, man, the world is my, my pantry. And as long as it, it's fresh, I particularly love seasonal. You know, I'm kind of blessed to live here in Montana in the, in the summer. You know, we have these incredible farmers markets and then I'll often ferment and, and can food um, that, that really fresh, you know, farmers market stuff. So I don't buy a tomato in January. I'll use what was grown in the garden or uh, from my CSA. And, and we have, you know, I have fresh bison. I have heritage pork, you know, and, and I don't go to a supermarket. I go down and to the farm. I see the guy. I see, you know, the, the pork that they're raising. And, you know, that's what's in, that's what's in my freezer. So um, I eat really well, Arnie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Fenster about culinary medicine. Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by Montana Rail Link, committed to safely delivering transportation solutions to their customers and partners. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. 
You continue to work as a cardiologist. Have you ever or do you ever contemplate being a restaurateur or commercial chef, opening your own product line? How does that part of your thinking develop? Um, I've I, I cooked professionally uh, already, you know, in, in my life. Um, we did actually own an award-winning restaurant, my wife and I, in, in Virginia. So we've kind of been there, done that. And for anyone who, you know, watches the shows on TV and thinks it's glamorous, let me just tell you, it's a hell of a lot of hard work. Uh, not a whole lot of glamour to it. Uh, real celeb The celebrity chefs you see on TV don't really cook anymore. Uh, not like we do to put product out. So we've been, kind of been there, done that. And really my passion now is about getting the word out about culinary medicine. And, and I don't think, I think one of the great things is I don't need to sell anybody, you know, my product line of food. Uh, because, you know, what I eat and what I get fresh in Montana, what I cook uh, you know, that's different than somebody in, in Texas, than different from somebody in California and, and New York City, etc. Uh, so, you know, really, if what I can convey to people is the are the tools so that they can go out and source and get their, you know, own, um, you know, fresh ingredients and cook to how they like their flavor profiles, that's what it's all about. And that's culinary medicine. If I was teaching you culinary medicine, which we are today, I'd say, Arnie, it's, it's all about you. It's about what you like to eat because a sustainable diet has to be delicious. So you want to eat that food every day. It's as simple as that. So I'd say, you know, you know, what are some of your favorite foods? Like for me, it's pizza. I love pizza. So when I'm home uh, and I'm not, you know, on call in the lab, every Friday is pizza Friday. And, you know, when I make that food, my pizza Napolitano from scratch, it is a processed, but not an ultra processed product. It's a fresh dough, flour, water, salt, yeast. It's tomatoes and salt. It's a little basil. It's fresh grass fed buffalo mozzarella. And that's it. So who is your audience and, and how do you market your ideas and concept to them? How do you reach the people you want to reach? Uh, well, you know, first, one of the, the things that's really helped me springboard this, uh, you know, has been teaching the class at the University of, of Montana, because obviously to put this out, it has to be vetted. We have to have the evidence. So we really, you know, had to do our homework. There's a whole lot of things that are available out there, as we know, in terms of diet, dietary advice. And even if you search culinary medicine on Google, you get like millions of hits. But a lot of this is just opinions, not all of them good. Uh, you know, our course is, is vetted um, and, and we have the evidence base. And so we, through the University of Montana, through UM Online, people can actually take our course and through the university get certified in, in level one certification in culinary medicine as we teach it. So I'm working with the university to really develop almost a school of culinary medicine. So we're going to have a level two and a level three, um, essentially what would be equivalent to, you know, a degree program in culinary medicine. And, you know, that is how we're training people and, and working on getting the word out, you know, uh, to folks, um, as well as how we've, and we've had a lot of people take our online course. Many of them have been healthcare professionals. So uh, we help them set up their own culinary medicine programs, whether it's a physician or a hospital or another healthcare entity. We've also partnered with the American Culinary Federation, of which I'm a member um, as a professional chef, um, because you know who knows more about cooking delicious food than chefs, right? And so we've established with them a certification program for uh, commercial kitchens. So it can be restaurants, 
it can be the, the kitchen at a nursing home, for example, uh, a high school, you know, et cetera, a hospital. Um, and we have a certified uh, a culinary medicine approved kitchen program uh, that people uh, and entities can get certified with that. And then they actually get a, a badge that they can advert from the uh, uh, American Culinary Federation. And, and that's the largest certifying organization for chefs, for professional cooks in the United States. So, for example, they also certify our culinary program, you know, at the university as well. You also are an author. You've authored four books, soon to be five books. You also uh, participate in uh, journal writing. Um, Tell me a little about that. Yeah, so we've got a a couple of books out. Uh, The latest one that's um, in, in publication is called The Food Shaman, The Art of Quantum Food. And really, that gives a lot of the data and background that we teach in the course. So I'd certainly recommend, you know, that one for folks that are interested in exploring more of what culinary medicine is. Uh, I've wrote, written a historical uh, food narrative, um, and and uh, you know that's uh, one that describes two historic cuisines. Uh, looking at the cuisine of ancient Greece. So we talked about the Mediterranean diet. Well, what was the real Mediterranean diet? What did Plato and Socrates and Aristotle eat? Because, you know, if you're subsistence farming, you don't have time to develop philosophies. Uh, and I, then I picked a another culture, which is in sort of complete culinary contradistinction to that, which is the Viking diet. Because again, if if you're not fit and well-fed, you're not out conquering half the world, right? And, and the Vikings were pretty good at that. So we look at those two diets, one sort of very meat-based, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the Viking, and then obviously the original Mediterranean uh, cuisine. And, and that book was called Ancient Eats. And then we've got another one coming out, exploring some of what I call the softer edges of the food experience. So one of the things that differentiates our brand of culinary medicine is we don't just look at food. We look at what we call the food experience because it's about, as I mentioned, your relationship with your food. So is food something that brings you joy? Uh, It certainly does me. Everything I eat when I sit down, I'm all about the yum. Right. And I'm about sharing that yum and having, you know, great food and great conversations. And, and food has been such a powerful part of our story as human beings and how we interact with each other. You know, to this day, therapists still use the romantic dinner, you know, as a therapy modality. Why? Because there's something in our DNA about as social primates, you know, about sharing food, breaking bread together, you know, if you will, uh, that makes it a very powerful kind of medicine in a non-medicine way. And so the next book that, that I have coming out looks at, at food and mindfulness and some of the interesting data that shows how we eat, how we approach this relationship we have in food um, really has powerful, um, very potentially healing effects on our food. So, for example, uh, if you take a moment and I would say, you know, they, people say, well, Chef Dr. Mike, what's the one thing you always eat? And I said, you know, one thing that comes with everything I eat is a serving of gratitude. And when we take just a few minutes and shift our focus to our food and and be grateful for it, and you could do this any way you want. Uh, it turns out that whether you want to say grace, whether you want to give thanks to the food, uh, whether you're grateful for the people, it really doesn't matter. It's the shifting of our brain power patterns from a dopaminergic reward center 
to an oxytocin-based oxytocin is what what's secreted when a mother bonds with her child. So when mothers breastfeed, both the, the nursing infant and the mother are operating on these oxytocin uh, neurologic patterns. Uh, it turns out that you can actually m- lower measurable markers of inflammation. So there's there's all this other aspect uh, to how we eat that comprises this food experience. And when we look at studies uh, like the Blue Zone. So this was done by National Geographic, Dan Butner and his group, a uh, really powerful long-term study. They said, hey, you know, there's these regions around the world where people live not only to be 100 in excess of what we'd expect to find in a population that size, but these people are functional. Uh, they're doing things. They have their cognitive faculties. What is it about these areas that makes them so special? You know, is it a certain food? Uh, it is, is it something they, they eat or drink? Is it, what, what is it? Um, they found the same thing that the Harvard Happiness Study did. So the Harvard Happiness Study, which was composed of the Grant and Gluick studies, asked a simple question. Out of all the things in our lives, what correlates to a long and happy and healthy life? And it's not what you eat or drink. Um, it's your relationships. It's the quality of the relationships we have with with each other. That, more than money, more than what you eat or drink, et cetera, et cetera, turns out to be the most powerful things in determining how long we live, how well we live, and how happily we live. And to me, that's very important. And and culinary medicine is is built upon nurturing, you know, that aspect of the food experience that we share. Chef Dr. Mike, as a medical entrepreneur, who's a practicing cardiologist, an educator, an author, a chef. How do you manage the business side of your work? I want, so one, um, I have a really smart business partner. uh, So that's always good. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he's been very successful and and is helping us. Like right now, uh, we're launching a multi-center national uh, study. Uh, We've got some proprietary measures of success in terms of our culinary medicine approach, something called the Imbos score. Uh, And you want to get that kind of as high as you can. And then we've incorporated some novel technologies, uh, looking at a uh, technology-based interface we call the patient's table, uh, so that you as the patient would have a healthcare professional, a chef, a dietitian, a food addiction specialist, and any other people who are important in your life when it comes to, you know, how you eat, when you eat, where you eat. And this team is built around you, the patient, at the patient's table. And we want to, again, you know, help you build and strengthen your relationship with the foods you eat in a way that, you know, brings you personal, you know, health, wellness and happiness. And so we're, we're doing that in a, a proprietary way with the technology, with things like the Imbos score, um, et cetera, and applying those culinary medicine principles we talked about uh, to develop that. And, and any, for anybody who's interested in, in listening, they could certainly, you know, contact me and I can put them in, in touch with, you know, our business uh, person who, who is, is directing that forward. Um, but we're really excited wh- where that aspect of culinary medicine is going because, you know, I- I'm getting old. I've had enough radiation in the, in the cath lab for more than a lifetime. And, uh, and I'm just really passionate about the culinary medicine. So we're looking to, you know, develop that further 
work with, you know, like hospitals, healthcare systems, particularly insurance companies, in rolling this out to selected populations. Because certainly the U.S. population, like around the world, industrialized nations, we're not getting healthier, Arnie. We're getting fatter, more diabetic, and more heart disease. You still need on a daily basis to manage your time, to figure out, you know, what days you're going to be you know, in surgery and which days you're going to be lecturing and all that sort of thing. They don't really teach that to you in medical school or even culinary school. So how did you figure out how to run this as a business? Um, by necessity and, and then asking some, some really good uh, people who know a lot about business. One of those is my dad who's a very successful businessman and, and he had to figure it out. He started out as a PhD organic chemist you're working in the chemical industry, you know, in a running a lab and developing things, um, and patenting, you know, new things for a company. And then he went into the business and sales aspect. So, you know, much like in cardiology, the idea is you learn from from great people and you don't make those mistakes that they learn from. You learn from their mistakes, which means shut up and listen. And and so, you know, my dad uh, asked me some really tough questions, you know, you're going to have to take a, a pay cut, right? So if you want to do this and you've got to develop time in an entrepreneurial fashion, um, guess what? You know, you're, you're not going to be working full time as an interventional cardiologist, which means you're not going to be making that salary, at least not right off the bat, which means, you know, are you that's the first question you have to ask yourself. I see a lot of people in medicine, you know, get caught in these trappings of, of a nice paycheck every month. Uh, they hate their jobs or they're frustrated or they're burned out, um, but they can't get out of it. So that, that's number one, um, you know, is, is kind of look at the budget and are you willing to make these the sacrifices? And certainly I'm wearing a lot of hats. Um, you know, I'm developing, you know, foods and recipes. I'm teaching, I'm developing courses. Uh, we're putting together this proprietary interface. We're working, you know, with patients and working through uh, these sorts of things. And so that does mean, you know, really, uh, shut up and listen, number one, and then time management, second, because you still have to pay the bills. Uh, so it is all about, you know, this time management. Um, and, and you know, I, I, I use Microsoft Teams. I've got my calendar and, um, you know, uh, so, so I, I, I look and I know when, when I'm booked out, when I can work, et cetera, et cetera. It's obvious that you are enthusiastic about what you're doing and you're uh, you know, have a, a good vision of where you're moving in the future. What's been the biggest obstacle so far in your career path? Um, the the ultra-processed food industry. Uh, they control a tremendous amount of money, which means they control a tremendous amount of the messaging, which means they also control it and ex execute a tremendous amount of influence even into our, unfortunately, our healthcare guidelines, which should be, you know, essentially neutral, right? They should be based on the data. And you asked, you know, as I discovered that they're not. Well, why are, aren't they? For anyone who's interested in that, Marion Nestle, who's a very, very well-known academic nutritionist, very well-respected, she runs a blog site called Food Politics. You know, if you want to depress yourself, if you're feeling like you're really having too good a day and you need you know, something to bring you down to earth, go to Marion's site and read a little bit about the food politics. And almost daily, she has an example of something that's published in the, quote, academic research 
that is essentially funded by industry to promote their message. So my message, which is like, eat a lot of real food and that's all you have to do. And I'm not like selling you, you know, some goji berries that are freeze dried and, 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 you know, Chef Dr. Mike pill. And I'm not, and I'm telling you to to get out of the line through the drive-through and don't buy the crap that's in a box on your grocery shelf. I'm not real popular in those circles. So that has been um, very, very challenging because, you know, if you sit down and you watch, for example, anything on TV, take a notice of how many food commercials there are. Right. Those are those are all people that that don't want Chef Dr. Mike to talk to you. Let's end on a high note. What has been the greatest surprise, positive, optimistic thing that's happened as a result of this career path you've chosen? Um, That when I get out and I talk to the people, so whether I'm lecturing, I'm on a show like yours, the people get it, the people understand the message and that's what keeps me going. Um, I'll tell you, I had a student in my class and, and she said I could share this story. Um, and she had a, a son who has a very rare uh, condition called, um, you know, hemiplegic, basically hemiplegic a migraine headache. So when this poor kid who's only like six or seven years old would get a migraine, many people get a headache or get an aura, they might throw up. He actually looks like he's having a stroke. So he loses function, you know, in his body. And these can, these can go on for hours. And she took the, the class and she wrote back to me and she said for, they each have some projects. For her project, she took the lessons she learned in the class and she changed her son's diet, which was all about, you know, sodas and going through the drive-through. Cause she's a, a working single mom and she's also taking class. So she's very busy, but she loves her son. So she, she, based on what she learned, she made the effort. Boom. He, he, he stopped having these episodes. Then sort of to prove our point, which is you can't just have correlation in science. Correlation is not causation. This, the, her son went and spent the weekend with her dad, with his dad, which was all about drive through food and endless, you know, diet Mountain Dews, so on and so forth. She said he came back Monday to her and had a five or six hour, basically, you know, one of these episodes. You know, by the end of the week, you, when she just was feeding him real food, they were gone. So those kind of stories, the connection to the real people, yeah, um, it's, it's going to be a, a, a long haul, but I know our data's right, and I know we're connecting with folks, and, and when we can develop this platform, um, it, it's going to resonate with them, I think, much to the dismay of you know, a lot of other, other folks. Chef Dr. Mike, thanks for the insights into your fascinating career, and I wish you well moving forward. Thank you. And this has made me hungry, so I'm going to find <laughs> some good, healthy food to eat after we're finished here today. Well, we're going to have to have me back, Arnie, and we'll do it, and, and we'll make a pizza together, because that's, that, that's delicious. There we go. I'm down for that. <laughs> hey, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I appreciate your listening to Can Do produced by Lena Beck in association with Montana Public Radio. For comments, recommendations for future guests, or general information, please go to mtpr.org. There you'll find previous guest contact information and content from all our shows. Listen next time when I'll talk with Global Cybersecurity Authority Sherry Davidoff. I'm Arnie Sherman, wishing you good health and prosperity.